Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associates Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is issue number 34 of volume 12, corresponding with the week of August 8, 2022. Today, we're going to look at three issues the truth about lying, acid suppressors and asthma risk, and testicular concerns and obesity. But before we get started, I wanted to go through a couple quotes that I thought were interesting related to lying. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Mark Twain wrote that. I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on, I can't believe you. Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. Sir Walter Scott. I think that last one was a really good one because we do start practicing how to deceive at very young ages as we are educated by our parents, how to do this with white lies and trying to save people's feelings and many other things. And how it progresses from there becomes the interesting part of what lying actually means in society as it is between relationships. So podcast number 25 is a discussion with the author of the book, The Truth About Lying, Dr. Victoria Tolwar. She is the chair and professor of the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology at the McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and one of the preeminent leaders in the world on the subject of lying. She had worked in the field of psychology for many, many years before spending a large amount of time looking at the subject of moral development, theory of mind, understanding, behavior, and specifically lying. We sit down in the podcast and go through some of the issues related to the truth about lying, her book, and how she has laid out what the ideologies upstream are of why we become liars and how many of us are truly liars and is it a high percentage and all the things that are related to that. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. Again, that is episode number 25. Let's talk about the truth about lying just briefly here. Adults lie. Shocker. We all know that. And most of the time, the lying is mild related to saving someone's feelings. But according to the research, adults lie roughly one to two times a day. Most of the lies are not damaging and often related to self-inflation of ego or to spare another's feelings. For me, that's great news because it'd be really a mess if everyone was lying all the time and you didn't know who to trust. But Most people are honest most of the time. Okay, now that we understand that part, most people are good. What are the realities of those that are not being truthful? What do our kids see in us? So that's part of what I'm going to do as I look in deeper into her book, The Truth About Lying, over successive newsletters. But for now, let's talk about the basics. Let's first start with an understanding of the truth default theory, which states that most of the time, humans default to honesty and that humans are trying to be cooperative and communicative. This is likely fostered by the ancestral reality that only the tribe survives. Lying would cause division, and division leads to separation, and to be separated from a tribe was the equivalency of heading to death because of a lack of protection or a lack of food gathering. Either way, to be separated was really a bad thing. So to be a liar would be 
an existential problem for many. When we deviate from the truth, there can be instances where that would make sense to the deviator. For example, let us say that you are a really good person and that you overslept one day for school or work. You may choose to make up a different reason to quickly get on with your day and be productive and not have to listen to a discipline discussion since this is not a common pattern for you and you don't feel like it will become one. No major harm done. However, if a pattern does develop, then life will note it and the person will suffer and be labeled a liar and or not punctual, which has its own consequences. So time tends to be the ultimate arbiter of somebody's ability to be truthful or not. Dr. Talwar writes that when the truth serves as an obstacle to our goals, that we may then choose to deceive rather than be honest. Because again, we are a goal-driven species. We like to achieve things. Food, relationship, money, success, village mentality. All of these things are goals for us. And, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That will be what we'll go after, right? That which keeps us alive and ability to make more of ourselves, some of our genetic code understandings. And so truth becomes part of that reality if it aligns with our goals. But if the truth starts to become misaligned with our goals, then there's opportunities for change to occur and potentially dishonesty. Lying takes much more effort as you have to use more brain capacity and energy to devise an alternative theory and then remember the truth of the new story. I mean, everybody knows that one. When you made up a lie as a kid, it's a lot harder to keep your brain focused on telling the truth around that story you made rather than telling the actual truth that occurred. And so we all know what that feels like. Your body language, your actions are now self-observed and you're quite self-absorbed with them to protect this lie, which takes vigilance, which equals a lot of brain energy waste. Remember, 30% of your energy spent daily is in your brain, so you're actually inordinately spending more. You don't want your squirrely actions to give you away, so you really will focus all this energy there. The formulation and protection of the lie means that the energy and mental cost are not insignificant, thus the lie would need to be worth it to complete. And I think that's key. You're not gonna lie for no reason, You're generally going to lie because you think it is in the best interest of yourself and hopefully the people around you to say the untruth. This calculus plays out in everyone at some point every year, maybe even every week. So let's take an example, white lies. White lies to protect another's feelings would be a primary example of deviation from the truth that makes sense to many. For example, young children often do not lie here as they tend to say it like it is. You ask a kid what they think of this shirt and they go, it's ugly. (laughs) They're not upset about it. They're just telling their truth. But if they do that in front of other people that the parents don't know or know in um, a peripheral way, they may be upset with this because it makes you look like you don't care. So then the parent will reprimand the child as this is a rude statement. The child's looking at the mom and said, you asked me what I thought. And they go, I told you what I thought. You, you didn't ask me if you wanted me to lie about it. So they go, well, this doesn't make sense. You asked me what to say. I told you the truth and now I'm in trouble for saying it. I don't like the shirt. 
It really is not attractive to me. So the child starts to realize this is not a fair thing that just happened. And they go, hmm, okay, maybe next time I won't do that because I just got castigated in front of random people. The parent then doubles down, explaining to the child that feelings and empathy leading to the person on the other side not feeling well is something we should pay attention to. So the child then surmises that a lie here makes sense. So from a very young age, we begin to teach kids that we can lie for, quote unquote, the right reasons. The question becomes, what are those right reasons and who decides? Right? This is very much akin to a lot of things happening in society today as it relates to jokes. Who decides what joke is funny and what joke is offensive? These are very difficult things when it comes to the world of free speech and free living. So, in essence, it can get tricky really quickly for the child and technically for the parent. So, there's also this statement that is used to protect the need for a white lie. Quote, if you have nothing good to say, don't say anything at all. How many times have we heard that? But here again, the child will have an issue if asked about the shirt. The non-response in itself is a response. Is it better to say nothing or lie? Right? So the parent says to you, hey, what do you think about this kid's shirt? And you go, I think that shirt sucks, so I'm not saying anything. The parent looks at you and go, what do you think? Well, <laughs> what are you going to say? So the answer is simple. You say, okay, I love that shirt. It's actually a piece of crap, but I love that shirt. <laughs> I find this stuff so amusing. So the genesis of lying in kids begins with us, the teachers, the parents, right? We teach them through our word and our action. So ground zero for all lying in human society is, not surprising, the adults, which is actually ground zero for most of the things that happen to kids. We are their guideposts, and what we do dictates what they see and and follow through with. From very young ages, children begin to lie, and they are very unsophisticated at it. We easily see the holes in their lies as they have a stain on their shirt from the ice cream that they denied eating. With age, they learn to be better liars, which is compounded by intelligence and punishment. And we're going to get into those two in another newsletter podcast, but those are important. From From age seven years old and on, the average child will skillfully become a better liar with practice. The major stimulus to improving these skills is the degree of punishment, especially if corporal. The physical pain inflicted after a lie or the emotional pain of being locked out from family events or something of that nature is a significant punishment that will teach the child to lie better next time to avoid the pain, which compounds the problem in the long run when he or she is caught again. So we, in essence, again, through our parenting, can teach kids to be even better liars by how we punish them and control them. Cognitive ability will play in here big time because if you have a lot of intelligence, you are more capable of becoming a sophisticated liar, which is harder to figure out. I think this is very true. It tends to me to be a reality that higher intelligent people tend to be better able to deceive and often have less problem doing so if it aligns with their goals. This is just probably a reality of ability coupled to 
learning over time how to do it well. So you couple all of this information to the fact that based on study data, we are at best a coin toss in our natural ability to detect a lie. So that's a mess. We are neither good lie detectors or good lie preventers because we don't teach it well. So as a society, we really need to spend time thinking about what's the best way to teach our children. Obviously, honesty is always the best policy and we should always be teaching our kids to be honest. And maybe we shouldn't be worried about what our kids say to another kid if they don't like the shirt, if they say it in a nice way. And maybe it's beholden upon the person receiving the comment to learn not to get so offended by everything. I see that to be a huge problem in society today. Because frankly, when I'm in a museum of art, like in New York City, I remember going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And on the wall is a purple canvas that's roughly six by six feet. It was just rolled on with a roller. I mean, that's not art to me. I could do it, and if I can do it, that doesn't really strike me as being art. Now, there were many people who thought it was art, including the professor that was working with us. And so my comment was to the person at the time, in my 20s, why would somebody want to hang this in their house? Right? And the person had reasons why. And they started talking about the brush strokes or the, excuse me, the roller strokes and how impressive the roller strokes were, was this, that, and the other. And they ascribed a so impressive amount of detail to why they thought this piece was so good, not convincing me at all. And then I found out it was worth a half a million dollars. That in and of itself was insanity. But that's the reality of life. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what other people like and are willing to pay for and are willing to do. Amen. And frankly, that's great. And my comments that I didn't like it are fine too. Right? So that's what we should be pushing towards. Let society be what it is each and every time for each and every person's experience. Some can like it. Some don't have to. Beautiful. Why do we all have to like the same thing? Why do we all have to tell a, a white lie about liking the same thing? I don't think it's necessary. And I think we should go back to a world where people in polite ways disagree and tell you what they dislike or do like. And that would be lovely. So I'm going to stop here. In another future audio cast, I'm going to go deeper into the consequence and punishment side of why lying it gets so much worse. And we'll unpack this over time. But lying, frankly, is not in our best interests. Section two. Infants exposed to acid-suppressing medicines increases the risk of asthma during childhood. From a study in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, Dr. Robinson and colleagues started to look at a group of 921 children in a cohort of which 22% or 202 were exposed to acid-suppressive medicines during infancy. Compared to the unexposed children, those exposed to acid-suppressing medicines were more likely to develop recurrent asthma or wheeze by age 3 and asthma by age 6. Acid-suppressing medicines like Prilosec and Zantac and Famotidine are often used during infancy to help children with gastroesophageal reflux disease. And the acid-suppressing medicine exposure during infancy was not significantly exposed, associated sorry, with the development of early childhood allergen sensitization, which means did they develop allergy sensitizing abilities to foods and or pollens, but yet they still had increased risk of wheeze and asthma. 
That's a little bit incongruent for me, but nonetheless, that's what the data shows. The study lays on top of many others that have shown similar associations between acid-suppressing medicines and issues related to ATP, asthma, food allergy, and eczema. There are multiple studies in the past that have seen that something's dysfunctional here. The mechanisms are likely related to the alteration of the intestinal pulmonary bacterial microbiomes, leading to pro-inflammatory pathogens gaining real estate in these locations and changing the local function and or the activity of the immune system, becoming inflammatory in the local region, causing some dysfunction, which then leads to inflammatory-based diseases like asthma. The function of the acid in the stomach is multifactorial. It is used to break down food products into forms of sizes that are easily usable and absorbable and are less antigenic. Uh, it also helps to control microbes that are not good for us, so kills viruses and bacteria that potentially are pathogenic. But it is clear that it has an effect on our natural microbiome and our immune sensitization. Do we end up developing allergies, right? So for me, the take-home point's real simple. If you have gastroesophageal reflux, let's go upstream and try and figure out why. Often it is dietarily driven, and most often in the babies, it's caused by the casein protein of milk or soy protein. So first fix the diet, and then only then consider acid-suppressing medicines. In older people, it is almost always related to diet. The vast majority of older children, it is because they're consuming large volumes of American food, primarily gluten-based, that drive irritation. So go upstream, don't use the meds, try and avoid the risks that come afterwards. Section three, diet, obesity, and insulin resistance are associated with smaller testicles in males. Rosella Conarella presented data on the impact of obesity, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, and type two diabetes in a cohort of boys aged 16 years and younger, and what happened to their testicles of the in Italy. The testicular volume, age, body mass index, insulin, fasting, glycemia, hemoglobin A1C, and glucose levels were all measured at 120 minutes after an oral glucose tolerance test, and they were all measured and reported. The study cohort included 61 adolescents with normal weight, 53 that were overweight, and 150 with obesity. There were 45 participants with insulin levels of 20 or higher, which is very high, and 97 were considered insulin resistant with a homeostasis model of assessment of insulin resistance of 2.5 or greater. Prediabetes was prevalent in 22 boys and three had type two diabetes. What they looked at then was what happened to testicular volume. In the peripubertal group, testicular volume was higher in those with normal weight compared to overweight or obesity. Boys with normal insulin levels had a higher testicular volume in pre-puberty and post-puberty compared with those with hyperinsulinemia, whereas peripuberty boys with hyperinsulinemia had a higher testicular volume compared with those with normal insulin levels. In post-puberty, adolescents with insulin resistance had lower testicular volume than those with normal insulin resistance. Type 2 diabetes did not influence testicular volume in any age group. This came to us from Endocrinology Today 2022 by Monostra. It is well known that the metabolic state of obesity and insulin resistance drive inflammation and hormone dysregulation. Thus, it should be of no surprise that we're seeing reproductive issues come into question. 
from Frontiers in Public Health, Panth, P-A-N-T-H, et al., say, diets high in unsaturated fats, whole grains, vegetables, and fish have been associated with improved fertility in both men and women. While current evidence on the role of dairy, alcohol, caffeine is inconsistent, saturated fats and sugar have been associated with poorer fertility outcomes in women and men. Furthermore, women and men with obesity have a higher risk of infertility. The likely pathological cause of these fertility concerns is the food-induced oxidative damage to mitochondria and the immune activation following the hyperinsulinemia, hyperglycemia, and adiposity. These and other effects drive a pattern of hormonal dysregulation leading to smaller testes, ovaries that are cystic and other reproductive problems. This week's newsletter, Recipe of the Week, is baked chickpeas. Go ahead to the newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com and you can click it to see. Also, I highly encourage you to sign up for the newsletter if you want to get it in readable form and you can do that also at www.SalisburyPediatrics.com. All right, everyone, remember to hug those kids. Have a great day. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of the provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.